Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mercer Mondays by the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Mercer has been holding a number of events to mark the 40 years since AIDS was first classified by the CDC. And today we have here with us the organizer of these events, Dr. Obidawa, who will now be introducing herself. <laughs> All right, so hello everyone. My name is Dr. Chineko Obidoa. I am an associate professor of global health here at Mercer University. And my areas of interest lie on um, a spatial and uh, social epidemiology of HIV AIDS, as well as globalization and the health of emerging adults in Africa. And I'm glad to be here. And we're glad to have you. As said earlier, this year marks the 40th year since the first five cases of what later became known as AIDS were officially reported. As we reflect on the past 40 years and remember the 32 million lives lost to HIV AIDS related illnesses and celebrate those who have survived and are still living with HIV, we also take time to recognize the advancements made in fighting against HIV AIDS. What are some ways we have progressed in this fight and why is it important to reflect on these achievements as we continue to work on ending this decades long epidemic? Okay. That's a good question. So I say I will say we've come uh, quite a long way so far. Uh, some of the accomplishments or the achievements include um, the medications, the fact that now, instead of a cocktail of 16 tablets, you had to take it every day, you can only have one tablet a day as far as the antiretrovirus are concerned and depending on your viral load. And that is enough to help you uh, keep the, your viral load really low. That is incredibly amazing. You know, from 1996 with 16 tablets to now, you just have about one tablet to take is awesome. So the research really got advanced when it comes to medications. We don't have a vaccine yet but there's been a lot of vaccine trials in different parts of the world. And there's a lot of knowledge that has been gathered on, you know, vaccine research around HIV AIDS. It's just that we don't have any um, vaccine that has made it through the, the third stage of, of the trials. So medications will be one. Number two, I would say is gaining some level of awareness um, about HIV AIDS around the world that has really helped to push down stigma. Although stigma is still a big issue in many parts of the world, including here in Georgia, I would say that the average person um, is more aware of HIV AIDS, and I would say understands a little bit more about it compared to um, the average person 30 years ago. And then as far as um, achievements too, I would honestly credit government involvement and the kind of um, attention that governments have given to this disease in, you know, in respect to creating intervention programs and creating support, especially making medicines affordable to an extent. And that's certainly a, a great achievement that has to be celebrated. Thank you, Dr. Rabidawa. As you said, um, over these past few decades, we have definitely come a long way. And it seems, of course, to be many steps or quite a few steps that we need to take to get to a point where we're able to definitely end 
this epidemic. And as you said earlier, in terms of stigmatization, it kind of leads into our next question. Goes without saying that there has been no lack of judgment and stigmatization of those living with HIV AIDS. This seems to originate from a general ignorance surrounding the virus, as well as the tabooness that often comes with talking about sex-related topics. Bigotry also appears to be at play as there are a large number of those living with the virus that come from marginalized identities. How have all of these factors that have contributed to this stigmatization interfered with the progress of stopping the HIV epidemic? Well, a lot. So if the question is how, how have all these factors contributed to stigma um, and, and consequently affecting the progress of stopping the AIDS pandemic, I would say a lot. Um, stigma is a big, big issue. And I'm just gonna speak from, from Georgia, you know, looking at what's happening in Georgia even though the state of Georgia has the highest rate of HIV AIDS in the country at the state level, and our rates are not showing any decline, it is really sad to know that there's still a lot of stigma associated or linked with this disease to the extent that you can find young uh, rural, you know, people in the rural areas who, um, when they test positive, sometimes their families may disown them or really marginalize them and discriminate against them that sometimes ultimately lead to their leaving home and you know running away or looking for other places to take shelter so the stigma in our state here is still very high and certainly does affect hiv work one of the ways that stigma impedes hiv work is by uh, creating a kind of silence, right? So people are very uh, fearful to speak up, um, speak up uh, about their status, one, or even fearful to get treatment so that nobody knows that, oh, they are on treatment and they're you know, sick with something. Also, stigma makes it hard for people to um, disclose, you know, even to partners. So you might have somebody who, is positive and meet somebody. And because of the fear of rejection, you find that the person may be, you know, very fearful to disclose to the new partner that I'm HIV positive. And when that doesn't happen, you can only imagine what, you know, that can lead to. So stigma has made this really, really um, um, problem. When it comes to the other ignorance, um, you know, surrounding the disease, the taboo of talking about sex and all the um, marginalization and injustice surrounding people who have been impacted, this is, this is the cycle. It's basically what perpetuates the cycle of HIV. This is part of why HIV is not over because HIV is not just a clinical disease. HIV is a social disease. Right, and just like it's not genetic, it's not airborne, right? It's clinical, okay, let me clarify that. It's a clinical thing, but what I mean by that is it doesn't originate in the hospital, basically, right? So if you wanna clarify that later, it doesn't originate in the hospital, it's not something you can get by walking you know, on the road, it's embedded in the social uh, uh, context in which we live. And there are certain things about the way our society, our communities, our world 
is uh, is uh, designed, there's certain things about the way it's designed that predispose certain people disproportionately to HIV risk, right? And that is really what needs to be looked at or focused on when you talk about ending this pandemic. Yes, it's just very unfortunate that because of this stigma, it's hard to even talk about HIV or those who have it or what to do with or how to take care of um, those who are living with HIV AIDS. And it seems that in order to help get rid of the stigma, we have to normalize talking about not only HIV itself, but things that are like associated with HIV, such as sex and so on. And we said earlier that the, the tabooness of sex has a play in the segmentation of HIV. So even when it comes to teaching about sex, proper education around the topic is often substituted with fear-mongering and Puritan ideologies. And this also contributes to the lack of knowledge surrounding the virus. Mm -hmm. So why is a proper sex education beneficial in stopping the spread of HIV? And what are some ways to improve sex education? Well, sex education is important because how do you get HIV AIDS to start with, right? So we know that HIV AIDS is a sexually transmitted disease. Now it turns out that sex is one of four ways you can get HIV. You know, HIV can be transmitted in four major ways through sexual contact, right? One, and then two, through mother to child, especially in the womb and then through uh, use of contaminated needles. And you can also get HIV through uh, blood transfusion. Now, these are the major ways HIV can be transmitted. Of course, HIV being a blood-borne disease can also be transmitted anytime that there is an exchange of you know, bodily fluids or blood from cuts and you know, different kinds of accidents, depending, right? So sex education becomes very important because majority of people who have HIV, at least in this country, have acquired it through sex. And we find out that sex education is extremely important, especially for young people as they become sexually active to understand, first of all, you know, the, the, the risks of sex. You know, sex is something that you have to know what you're, you're getting into you know, when you decide to start having sex and ways to protect oneself from um, dangerous, um, you know, diseases should be included in, in that type of sex education. Uh, right now, I know that our sex education in schools have not necessarily been the best, right? And I would suggest that <laughs> ways to improve this, to be honest with you, I know that we have shifted the responsibility for something like sex to the schools. And I think that that's where the problem is. Because the school, in as much as it's a place where we get to learn about things and grow, I personally don't believe that the school should be the people telling children about sex. I think the parents and the trusted family member or guardian who is in charge of a child should be the very first person that educates a child or a young adult about sex, a teenager rather about sex. And we shouldn't leave all that responsibility for the teachers. 
Because of course, every school system has its own agenda, has its own expertise, has its own interests and are controlled by whoever is, is, is you know, paying the bills. So th they will end up doing what they can do. They will end up doing what they will, they want to do. But in your own home, you get to decide what you want your children to know. I was actually very surprised. This semester I'm teaching a class on HIV AIDS in Africa. And on the first day of class or the day we started talking about um, sex and how HIV is transmitted, I asked my students, I have 21 of them in the class, and I asked them, how many of you have your parents talked to about HIV? You know, how many of you have had a conversation with your parents about HIV? And none of them raised their hand. None. That was a sad day for me because I wondered why. I mean, how do you give your child a car keys or keys to a car or buy your child, you know, an apartment or if and you have not had a conversation about HIV? I didn't even ask about sex. Most of them have not had any conversation with their parents about sex. And they are teenagers, they live out of home and most likely they are from Georgia. I said that's the most dangerous thing to do. So you really, my opinion may not be as popular as others, but I personally believe that in the light of what we are dealing with, in the light of all the variabilities with sex education in schools, the parents, the family should be the first um, um, responders, the first people responsible for telling children or educating uh, young people about sex and answering all the questions they have and continuously doing that. You know, so improving sex education should not be just that one hour session in the school, in middle school where you get taught whatever. It should be updated, it should be repeated, you know, and reinforced. And then I'm gonna add that sex education should not start and stop with, oh, this is the diseases you, you can get, or these are the types of sex, or these are the condoms or types of condoms but also talk about the psychosocial aspect of, of sex, right? Knowing that sex is one thing that engages the total well-being of an individual, not just the physical. There's the mental, there's the emotional, there's the social, right? So we're talking about relationships. How do you engage relationships? How do you grow relationships? You know, what should that look like, especially intimate relationships? So you can't have a 12-year-old girl or 14-year-old guy and just hand them condoms or just go get them a, a, a bed control and let them be. There has to be you know, some kind of effort in making sure that they are all around, they're protected all around, emotionally, mentally. How do they cope with, with a, a breakup, right? How do they cope with a rejection? How do they even date? What is dating supposed to be? So all of that really addresses the, the entire uh, well-being of a person. And sex education should be extended to all of that. And I think with that being more holistic, we, we will, we will um, help curb the, the spread of HIV. I like that you brought up the point that talk of sex education should be more holistic and that it seems to go beyond just the body. And like, of course, it goes beyond the body. With sex, there's a lot of things that comes with it. And there are a lot of things you sign up for when you um, engage in sex activities with someone else. And 
people who are growing up and developing. So, so of course, be given the tools to navigate that, to navigate the relationships that um, often coincide with the person you're having sex with. Um, and the point that you brought up with parents being the one to educate their kids, or at least being the first major source of education in terms of sex for their children. The only thing that I have to ask or ask about that is how do we encourage parents to take this role? Because as you said earlier, when you asked your students that day, no one seemed to raise their hand. So there seems to be a hesitance for parents, even if they, of course, they've had sex before. Um, <laughs> there still seems to be a hesitance <laughs> to um, take up the role to explain mm. it to their children. And for parents who also seem to lack all the um, the needed knowledge in terms of relationships, like you can say um, the parents could be divorced and so on. Mm -hmm. So they might not necessarily have the tools for conflict resolution or like mm -hmm. how to really have a stable mm -hmm. relationship with your partner. For those kind of parents, how would you, um, what needs to be in place to inform them mm -hmm. and give them the tools to also inform their kids and give them the mm -hmm. tools to build healthy, strong relationships with the people they have sex with? Well, you see, it's a good question you asked there. And I'm always amazed that why, you know, when we talk to parents and they're looking at you like, oh, it's as if, how am I going to say this? I'm like, how did the child come here? Was, did you buy the child from the store? The, the child was most likely conceived. And then, you, you, you know, which probably happened because there was a sex encounter. And, and I'm like, how is that so hard for parents to explain to their kids? How is that so hard? I, I honestly don't know, but I will start with saying, build up the courage, you know, consider the situation, consider the context in which these children are growing up today. It is not the same context that we, you know, the parents grew up in. These children have access to sexual images right from five years old, and they have to negotiate these things on a daily basis. So speaking to the parents, I will just say, find the resources, there's the internet, it's just about courage, sit down. And there's so many resources on guides on how to talk to your children about sex, books, videos, you know, and they really no, there's no excuse about that. Now, when you now talk about people who may have, you know, split families or situations where, you know, it's just the father and the daughter and it's kind of awkward, what do you do? You enlist the help of a trusted adult. So you go back to the family network. Is there a grandmother? Is there an aunt? Is there an uncle? Is there a family friend? If there, there is a connection to a community group, a church, find, of course, people have abused those spaces as well, but find a trusted person in your network and ask them to help you deliver this education to your child. And today people go the extra mile when they're looking for something they need. This thing requires that type of attention, especially living in a state like Georgia. I keep sounding on it. It's different if you live in North Dakota. I'm serious. I'm not saying that you don't have to have sex education for your kids, but when it comes to the, the pertinent nature of it, North Dakota's HIV rate is very minuscule. Again, it does not eliminate the need to have sex education, but when we're living in a state of like Georgia, we are at the top of the list with all sorts of STDs, chlamydia, syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV certainly. 
you can't be ignorant. You can't postpone that conversation. So my, my advice is uh, get help, get help resources online, get trained, ask for help. And if that becomes a challenge, enlist the help of trusted adults and don't just leave it for the schools to do all the work. Thank you, Dr. Obito, for clearing that up for me. Um, moving on to the next question, we're kind of bringing it back to the events that are being held at Mercer. Um, the Mark HIV at 40 events currently being held on campus would no doubt help with decreasing the stigmatization of HIV AIDS by not only increasing awareness, but also aiding students with the tools to hopefully join the fight against this epidemic. In a fight that often aims to recruit government officials and acclaimed doctors, what inspired you to recruit these young adults on campus? Well, you know, this is, I've worked with young adults, uh, youth and young adults for a long time, in fact, literally all my life. And I have come to appreciate the energy, the intuition, the, 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 the intelligence, the innovation, you know, just the, the power of youth in getting things done. Now, engaging youth in this sense, um, this is not the first time I'm engaging youth in HIV activism in Macon. The very first HIV Summer Institute I created and directed was uh, recruited about five um, young adults, different levels, undergrad, graduates at, here in Macon. And I trained them in delivering a HIV workshop, tailored HIV workshop to different groups in Macon. And for that summer, we went around different groups and presented HIV workshops to different groups. And it was a, an amazing success, right? So um, this is just continuing, continuing in that light. And the inspiration is one, well, here we are in a state like Georgia, most impacted by HIV in the country. But again, the group of people most impacted by this disease glo globally and in America is people between ages 25 and 29 or 30. And you find that those infections that are showing up in the graph for 25 to 29 actually happened most likely before 25. So the age group between 15 and 25, this is really the high risk period and phase. So engaging young people who are really the most impacted becomes very important because you get to leverage not only their energy and power, but you also get to make them um, what we call change agents who are able to convince other uh, peers who are able to serve as role models and just be uh, voices and ambassadors for change. So for me, the inspiration is just right there, you know, apart from the fact that, you know, when you're getting older, you can't do a lot of things, you know, and young people, most of the time, even though this time I've done quite a few things faster than they, but anyways, um, they, they, they've brought that energy, that um, freshness and, that force. In fact, they inspire me to, to, to do what I do to an extent. And then finally, what also inspired me to engage them in this area is that COVID has taken a lot from us in different ways. And one of the ways in which I've seen COVID impact us here at Mercer 
is that there's just been this pushback. I mean, groups are finally getting back together again, but not as they used to in the past. So I find that there is a limited number of opportunities for students to engage beyond uh, maybe their closed fraternities or sororities and really do stuff that is large scale. So by giving them this opportunity to you know, grow in their leadership skills, it's like trying to get, take back the, the life, trying to take back the future from what COVID has taken from us. I like how you're saying with students on campus and how they have energy as young people. And I honestly didn't see it from that perspective, but it is true because we have our life ahead of us and we're often, um, especially as Mercer students told that with this life, we can help those around us. And building on this with Mercer students, we are said to be bound in difference in the future. Mm -hmm. um, with the HIV epidemic, it is a worldwide epidemic affecting communities both inside and outside the US. Within the US, a number of those living with the virus are the queer community and the Black American community, as well as drug users and people living in poverty. Outside of the US, many governments within Africa lack proper resources to treat and stop to spread the virus among their peoples. For Mercer students who look to help those living with HIV AIDS, how should they approach aiding these diverse communities affected by the epidemic? Well, that's a good question too. And I think where, where we will start is to, first of all, educate yourself about this disease educate yourself about not just the pathology or the transmission, but the social determinants, the underlying root factors that drive this epidemic. You know, a lot of people don't realize that disease is not randomly distributed in any society, in any community. You're always going to have a clustering. And in the case of HIV AIDS, the cluster overlaps with race, with poverty, with marginalization, with neglect with rural areas. So again, if you really want to help, educate yourself. Start with attending these events. We are almost 50% through with these events by the time this podcast is gonna be airing, but we still have amazing opportunities to engage and to learn about HIV AIDS and to demystify any myths you may have about it. And once you're well-educated, then during that education, you will learn about areas that um, you could actually help with. And one of the things I will say is HIV in Georgia is heavily driven by um, social injustice. So wherever you see social injustice, I must, I, I'm sure you're going to see high HIV rates. Okay, so moving from educating yourself connect with any kind of activities, events that are engaged in advocating for the marginalized, speaking up. You know, HIV is everything. HIV is public policy. HIV is, is um, you know, think economic policy, social policy, right? We, we talk about mass incarceration in Georgia, and sometimes we separate these things, and we, we don't know that in the deep south, mass incarceration of Black males is one of the driving forces of HIV. 
So any kind of effort that you put towards advocating for less prison time or even alternative ways of punishment, because we know that a lot of these children who err also come from disenfranchised neighborhoods and communities that have been victims of neglect and exploitation. And a lot of times their ability to even, um, even make it out of that space is sabotaged. And I'm not trying to excuse bad behavior breaking the law, but I'm just trying to say it as it really, really is. It's a very vicious cycle. Like today I was talking to students in my environmental health class about environmental injustice, you know, and I was telling them that environmental injustice is very similar to environment um, to social injustice. Because, you know, we have these comments of, oh, pick up yourself on your with your boost strings. Everybody, you know, you have to be responsible for taking advantage of resources. And while that is true, we find that it's not quite easy for certain people. First of all, people who don't even have boots to start with. So we can't assume that everybody has boots. Then we can't assume that everybody has the strings on the boots. I could have boots, but my strings could be missing, right? And then we can't assume that I can tie my shoe. I may not know how to tie the shoelace. That is not something you take for granted. Okay, now if I know how to tie it, I may not be able to bend over because of circumstances or situations or health concerns. And then I may not even have the ability to tie the shoe because of a disability, right? So at the end of the day, you find that social injustice impedes people's abilities in so many different ways. And the same goes for HIV. So when we're talking about HIV and how social injustice impacts HIV, in all of those realms, inability to get good access to education, inability to get information about HIV that's accurate, you know, family situations that are compromised, poverty, lack of access to food, all of those things impede somebody's ability you know, to protect against HIV and disproportionately expose them to risk. So if you are interested in, in helping to reverse the HIV epidemic, especially in Georgia, my, my charge to you is get educated. Take a class, read a book, watch a movie, ask questions, understand what's at stake, and then engage in any kind of activities geared towards redressing social injustice, because that is the number one driver, to be honest with you, underlying risk factor that predisposes a lot of Black youth to HIV. And then finally, I'm just going to say, get close to somebody who's impacted by HIV find a way, ask questions. There are so many organizations out there. We have the Hope Center right here. You can always walk in there and say you want to adopt a HIV. Not that you're going to be helping them in any way, you, really for you to learn more. And I found that when I, I get close to people, you know, who, who are in worlds that I have not entered, my life is enriched in so many ways. So this is really a personal, for people and I really encourage them to get close to know people and understand their struggles. I actually kind of disagree in terms of if you get to know somebody with HIV, you're not helping them. I feel like you are helping them in a way because it helps in humanizing those who mm. do have the disease. And in terms of that or looking at it in that perspective, I think, yes, you're helping them. Would yeah. you agree? Yes, and I will agree, but I'll clarify something. So 
where I was coming from with that was the way we look at people who have like say HIV or health issues. A lot of times we, we look as if we are going to help them. And at the end of the day, first of all, how are you really going to help them where you don't have, it's not like you're paying for their medication. You're not necessarily going to change their living situation. So I just want to debunk that whole idea of like, oh, we're going to make it. A lot of these people are not needy. They just happen to have this chronic disease that, you know, depending on where they fall in the economic ladder, they may actually be dependent on the government to pay their medications. And that means that they are under the poverty line. But a lot of them are not discouraged. A lot of them are not weary and not dying. They are moving around their daily job. So yes, I agree that yes, when you get to know them, you're humanizing them, you're encouraging them. But I don't want us thinking that we're going to change their lives. At least from my own experience, the conversations I've had with HIV positive people. Yeah, I've heard their stories, I've nodded, I've cried with them, I've hugged with them, and maybe that's, I've provided that help. But my life was changed more than theirs after that encounter. I see in terms of if you do see yourself as completely changed in your lives, you risk the, um, you risk marking yourself in a way as a savior. Mm -hmm. And that in its own terms is quite problematic. But thank you, Dr. Rubidoua, for your answer. To move on to the um, next set of questions. In terms of steps that can be taken right now, testing is no doubt beneficial as knowing one's status, as you said earlier, in terms of people knowing their status and being um, afraid to let it, their partner know, it's still important to, of course, know one's status because then you at least have that hesitance to in sexual activities and like know which steps you need to take that can help in preventing the spread of HIV AIDS. So what are some ways to encourage students to test themselves? And what are some other ways Mercer students can join the fight against the HIV AIDS epidemic? Hmm. Well, with testing, I mean, what are some ways to encourage students to test themselves? Well, uh, how do I put it? I, I would just say, just like you, you know, many students have, let's take COVID for example. You know, many students have gone on their own to get tested when they felt um, sick. And I don't know what motivated that. Maybe the fact that there was access to treatment, you know, testing sites at Mercer or what. But I've noticed that people have gone out of their way to make sure that they are COVID free or negative. It's just the same thing. So HIV testing, especially if you've been exposed or you have been exposed to any of the transmission routes, I will encourage any student to go and get tested. In fact, one of the events listed on our list of events is HIV testing happening on World AIDS Day. So Common Ground has been doing this. I really uh, shout out to that organization. They've been doing HIV testing for years since you know, I've been here at Mercer. You know, and every World AIDS Day, they have a setup they organize with the local health department and they have people come here and do HIV testing and counseling. And it's always amazing. So I'll encourage students to take advantage of that. It's right here on campus and you have confidential access to that. But otherwise, um, one in seven people who have HIV don't know that they have it. And you know the one funny thing, 
Just because you don't know you have HIV does not mean that HIV doesn't get passed on to somebody who is exposed to your bodily fluids. It doesn't stop and say, oh, wait a minute. He or she doesn't know she has HIV, so we are not permitted to be transmitted. Mm -mm. So you can still transmit HIV to many people, even if you don't know you have it. And how can we end an epidemic where we have this kind of silent uh, transmission going on? So I will just encourage and motivate. I don't know what else to really say to make people get tested. I would say you don't want to wait too long because HIV progresses to AIDS. And when it becomes AIDS, it becomes very, very difficult. Yes, the medications are there, but you may have progressed too far, you know, to, I don't know, reverse the effects. So please be encouraged to go and get tested. Yes, they, there is a lot of encouragement that's needed for students to get tested. And I think sometimes, what might the front say, COVID testing or people going out of their way to test them for COVID rather than things like HIV and so on, is that with COVID, it seems that like anybody can get it. There's not really, and it's the same for HIV too, but because of the history of HIV and mm. who said, quote unquote, to have HIV. And you see this a lot with STDs in general. There's mm. this idea that, oh, I can't have it. I'm not quote unquote dirty. And I think that needs to be rejected as a thought process. Anybody can get HIV if you um, have sex with somebody who has HIV. It goes without saying. Like anybody who engages in sexual activities will be more encouraged to get themselves tested once they understand that they are not protected from um, STDs or HIV and so on. If they don't take the proper precautions, of course. Yeah, and you know, HIV doesn't show on the face. That's one thing students should know. You know, mm -hmm. I teach this in my intro to global health class and it, you know, we laugh about it and nobody, you will not even tell that somebody has HIV. And you, you can even look at a, a, a potential partner and say, oh, this person looks good. And the person may not even know they have HIV or the person could be on medication and be fine. So at the end of the day, HIV has a long latency period. So it can sit in your body silently replicating and you don't have any symptoms, you don't have any sickness. So even if that alone is not enough to scare people to say, okay, just because you can't tell HIV from somebody's face or body, you know, you should really get tested. Yeah. And, and I know we have talked quite a few ways of how to fight against HIV AIDS, especially as a student mm. uh, in terms of testing and fighting against social injustice. But are there some other ways you would like to add? Mm. Well, I will start to say, I will add to that by saying, join, <laughs> attend the events that we have planned. That is the starting point where you start learning so all of these events have information about the disease that you can learn about, the disease, the epidemic, the pandemic, right? And just starting from there, I mean, if I have to give a highlight, we are 50% almost into our events, but next week, Monday, um, we are having a panel discussion on HIV and human rights, and I'll be one of the panelists. The other panelist is actually a, a guy who is a HIV positive activist. He works for the local um, Hope Center that treats HIV patients. And his story is amazing 
and it's just amazing, incredible story. And it's on Zoom. So I will encourage people to come and learn about that. And upper week we have, oh, we also releasing a newsletter, you know, um, the newsletter has been released next weekend. The panel discussion is when we come back from Thanksgiving. There's a game night. There's a HIV testing and research exposition on a World AIDS Day. So we're coming to a close, but we still have a good amount of opportunities to learn about the disease. Also, I would encourage people to, you know, do personal research. To, to, to do personal research. In classes, people get to pick paper topics. People get to pick projects. Another way you can join the fight is to make HIV your target and look for a different dimension of HIV to either research or include as a service learning project and just make the connections like that. The amazing thing is that HIV is connected to every aspect of our society. So you're always going to have an implication for HIV AIDS for anything you study, especially in the social sciences. So um, extend your personal research. And then I would say, talk to people, make it your assignment. You know, Let people know you as the HIV person because within two, three minutes of you chatting with somebody, ask them, do you know about HIV? Have you gotten tested, right? Be that advocate that doesn't need government funding to, to end HIV. You know, so educate people, go home and talk to your parents, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles. They also have issues. I mean, the nursing home, we know we have issues with HIV in the elderly population, not just nursing homes, rather the senior citizen communities. So you can't just leave your grandma and your grandma did not get the same HIV education you got. And by the way, the, the grandma may even think that she, he or she is not even uh, going to be able to get HIV. A lot of myths. So your assignment is the much you know, go and teach others, go and explain, um, go and explain things to people and let people know um, basically what's going on so that nobody lives or stays in ignorance. That's what I'll, I'll say. Yes, and in terms of attending the events to help with educating yourself in the issues of HIV AIDS and helping stop the um, spread of it, we can go ahead and list all the events. November 30th, there is the Love Game Night being hosted in Wiles 206 from Actually, it's, it's night. We had to change the date, the venue. So it's night 206. Oh, so yes, it is night 206. And it is from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. On December 1st, as I said earlier, there's a HIV testing um, event going on. Um, and it, it will be in Penfield from 12 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. On December 1st, there's also a research exhibit um, poster presentation within the Tarver Library from 1.25 p.m. to 2.15 p.m. Also on December 1st, there is going to be a drone photo with people with the HIV slash AIDS ribbon, and it will be hosted by the planning committee on Cruise Plaza at 4 p.m. And within all these events, there's going to be a lot of prizes ranging from orange, the orange parking pass, gift cards, gifts, baskets, custom gifts, and of course, lots more. So yes, please come out, please join, and of course, be educated and join the fight. And moving on to the last question, 
As we mark these 40 years of progress against HIV AIDS, we are also looking at the horizon of ending this epidemic. What does the end of HIV AIDS epidemic look like? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Well, it looks like the end of injustice. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of buzz now. In fact, the, the movement that we have going at the national level is called End HIV Now. So there's a lot of um, efforts being galvanized towards pushing for the end. So everybody wants it to be over. And I, I, I share that sentiment. I share that um, wish. Um, I know that a, lot, a good amount of that is also making medications available and having people adhere to their medications because the truth is when your viral load goes very low up to the point where they call it undetectable, you are technically untransmissible, meaning you're less likely to transmit it to somebody else. So thinking about it in that way, once we can get people who are HIV positive on their meds and keep them on the meds, they can be undetectable, which means we can transmit it again. And as much as that looks like a, a very, um, well, it is attainable, I wouldn't say it's not, but we also have to realize that in addition to pushing for those medications, we still have to do the work upstream. And the work upstream involves prevention. And as we speak now, we still have a lot of people becoming HIV positive, especially in the state of Georgia. So where are they getting that um, the disease, the virus from? From somebody, right? Now, is that person not on medication? What are the factors that are keeping the person on medication or, or not making the person to be to, to attain viral uh, suppression? But at the same time, there's also all these social determinants of health that predispose people, and those things have not disappeared. So as much as we are pushing to end this and what it really looks like for me is the end of injustice. And when, when we, 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 we can address injustice and reduce it, we will see HIV go down. And that's my, my, my conclusion. Thank you, Dr. Abidawa. I feel like the end of injustice would also lead to a lot of um, conclusions of other things in terms of, as you said earlier, an env environmental injustice, and of course the injustice that goes on within or against marginalized identities. And with ending injustice, injustice of course, we will end HIV AIDS as a lot of things are just going on with HIV that has to do with this discrimination against the people who are living with it. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Abidoa. Thank you for educating us as always. That will be the end of this episode of Mercer's Mon Mercer Monday Monday's podcast. Join us next time and have a good week, everyone.